This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, lovely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real, practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode, we speak to sex educator Justin Hancock of Bish UK. This is the thing with sex education generally, is that there's too many lectures and not enough tools. We're not equipping people correctly. We talk about how to teach young people about consent. If you're talking about consent and you're not talking about power, you're not talking about consent. And you're not teaching anything useful at all. And when Justin got on the wrong side of the media... Sex educator Justin Hancock thinks we should be giving sex tips to five-year-olds. I'm like, come on, that's not what I said. Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and I'm joined as always by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Gamble. Hello mum. Hello Diggs. In this show we attempt to give you the sex education that you never got from school and that's exactly what our guest today Justin Hancock from BishUK.com does as well. Great free sex and relationship information for over 14s. We'll be talking to him in a minute but first mum... Whilst we're on the subject, I want to talk to you about your thoughts on the new online safety bill that's being passed in the UK. It's going to require all users who want to access any pornographic website to verify their age through a form of identification like a credit card, passport or driver's licence. So if you want to watch porn, you've got to be over 18. Thoughts? Well, it's not going to be difficult to circumvent, I'm afraid. I'm worried that people will be able to get around it. If it works, it's brilliant. But there are other websites that show porn other than porn websites. Mm. If you've got someone else's login, it's not a problem. If you've got a VPN, it's not a problem. Yeah. So I think I think people will find ways around it. I mean, it's the government virtue signalling, really, isn't it? It's, uh, it's saying, well, we are concerned about this, isn't it? You think it's just then, you know, it's not going to actually have much take what- up? I don't know. It's created an obstacle, which has got to be a good thing. And I mean, I, I, obviously, that's you, you don't want under 18s necessarily accessing that sort of material. Mm. On the other hand, it's come a bit late. Mm. It is very much like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. I suppose. But then you, do you not think that future generations, this would be good for them? Like, yes, maybe my generation and previous like who've had this Mm. who've had access to porn before 18 bad for Mm. them but for the future it's good well we'll see won't we yeah exactly i think it's interesting that you say about that because i think people are forgetting as well this isn't just for under 18s like and you mentioned other websites that show porn you know like tumblr took off porn recently um facebook Mm. and instagram don't have porn but twitter reddit Websites of that have porn on their websites. Mm. So you and I would probably have to, on those websites, verify our age. One thing I'm Mm. worried about is the data 
Because like, if I put in a credit card or a passport or a driver's license to Twitter or Reddit, mm. I'm just, yeah, is your data safe? Yeah, exactly. Is my data mm. safe? It's a bit mm. worrying. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are thinking, oh, this is just for under 18s. But no, we all have to verify it. And mm. it's websites that aren't just, you know, your classic porn ones. Well, it's interesting, though, because it's like in the States where they can ask anybody for evidence of their age when they order a drink. Mm. So even if you looked old like me, you'd still be you'd still be. I mean, I have been asked you know, mm-hmm. in the States for, for evidence of my age, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but, but that's different because you just showed them a piece of, you know, piece of card and they're like brilliant. Whereas yeah. this is like you're inputting data, which they then have to store because mm. if you want to reaccess that website, which is interesting. It's good to you say, talk about VPNs as well. I read online mm. a third of VPN users are between the ages of 16 and 24. So mm. to think that, you know, young people are using VPNs, they understand how to use them, which basically mm. makes your computer think you're in a different country so if other countries don't have this restriction you can make your computer think you're there and you can watch the porn fine do you know what's interested me because of people talking about what people are able to access in russia everyday people who don't want to watch just tv news yeah they're talking a lot about well they can use vpns and it's being explained a lot more and it crossed my mind the other day oh so you're now telling young people how to get around all of this by using VPNs. And that sort of bothered me a little bit that so that that I mean, I, I guess people know anyway, but it's just making it a little bit more out there, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about what porn has to has to answer for in a way, because a lot of people come on here and they talk about how porn it has been the main sex educator for them or mm. their partner. And it has a lot of things to answer for. And, it's, and so hopefully, this is a positive thing moving forward. But that really does beg the question, is porn and under 18s a big issue? And that is something that we are going to talk about with our guest today. The perfect guest we've got for this, sex educator Justin Hancock. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So Justin, we're going to dive straight into it. You're the owner of the fantastic website, bishuk.com, giving all sorts of sexual relationship advice to over 14s. And to be fair, it's not just for 14-year-olds and that sort of thing. I think anyone from any age can learn from your website. And you've got a lot of subheadings and drop-down menus, you know, for the, some of the big things, user suspects like love, sex, bodies. Um, and one of those is porn. It gets its own special place on the website. It's clearly a, a big issue. There's a lot of hysteria about watching porn at the moment um, and under-18s watching porn. You know, people are worried about the example it sets for them and how they conduct themselves in the bedroom. And, you know, are they seeing types of sex that aren't very nice or very good or or, or something that we should aspire to? Mm-hmm. But we spoke to another sex educator the other day, Nathaniel Cole, who said that when he's in schools, he talks to these kids and they're very aware that the sex that they're seeing in porn isn't representative of real sex. Mm-hmm. So should people be worried about young people in porn? Uh, I think that they should have a... They should pay an appropriate amount of attention. And I think mm. at the moment there is a disproportionate amount of attention being paid to the wrong things. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So most young people are not looking at pornography. It seems like the, the people's relationship with porn is pretty much correlated to their relationship with, with sex generally. So the more interested young people are in sex, the more likely they're going to be interested in porn. Mm. Uh, so every year Pornhub one of the hated porn platforms makes use of all of the data it gathers on all of the all of the people who visit their website and in the UK they found that the average age of the viewer is 39 
So this idea mm. that it is young people in their millions going off and learning everything about sex from pornography, mm. I think is not quite really uh, what's happening. And, you know, young people are able to uh, to critique what it is that they see. They're not kind of passive sponges that uncritically take on board the messages that porn sends out. However, porn does give a lot of information about what sex is. And as it shows good sex, but it doesn't show what is necessary in creating good sex. It doesn't show what, you know, what we need in order to have pleasurable sex. And, you know, I think that I have a lot of criticisms for porn at the website. But to say that porn is damaging and damaging all young people, I think is perhaps the wrong uh, well, it's a message, and I don't really think we should be sending out messages. What I want to do is to give young people tools to be able to figure out their relationship to it. I really like that because I, I think sometimes we see young people as sort of passive participants in this whole conversation, and we just basically go, right, here's a load of warnings, don't watch porn, don't get an STD, and don't get pregnant, rather than actually finding out where they're at with certain things and responding accordingly so they're not just spat out at 16 or 18 or whatever without a clue. And I mean... I think the fact you started Bish UK tells me this, but do you think schools are doing enough? Uh, well, the sex education people get in schools is not enough. And even if it was enough, it's not enough. Um, mm, because mm. Um, So good sex education is um, a combination of information, skills and values acquisition, mm-hmm. as well as it being about the opportunity to explore emotions. Mm. So it has to be all of those things. And, you know... Most young people's experience of sex education is that they're not experiencing any of that uh, Mm. or that that what they are experiencing is still based on the kind of sex education that we might have all experienced, which is, you know, to be quite negative about sex, to be over invested in talking about the risks and the harms Mm. of sex, to basically talk about it as though it is a stigmatized subject and not something that we should be talking about. And that we might talk about condoms or that people might be shown horrendous pictures of people with tertiary syphilis and things like that in order to put them off having sex. Um, We teach a bit more about consent, but it's still incredibly basic. It's still this Mm. kind of yes means yes, no means no, which isn't very useful to young people. They get shown this video called the tea and consent video, which is absolutely dreadful and young people hate it, but yet they still keep getting shown it. And so there's also a kind of a... You know, I really feel for the teachers here as well because they're they're often being asked to deliver something where they've not been trained, but also they don't know what good looks like. So they've never experienced it for themselves. Mm. And so their own relationships and sex education has kind of taught them, well, this is something I should be awkward about. This is something where I shouldn't really be talking about it. And so we need to stick to the narrow biomedical parameters, which are all about disease and things like that and unplanned pregnancy. And, and so it just perpetuates and sadly, because of all of the cuts uh, to services, all of the cuts to local authorities and the way that schools are funded or not funded, a lot of the expertise that used to be in place when I started out in through specialist youth work teams, through um, local authority support services, through charities and the voluntary sector doing a lot of this kind of work, a lot of that isn't there anymore because of cuts. And one of the reasons that I started my website for young people was that because there are so many barriers to actually delivering this work, it basically became a way for me to think, well, at least if I can direct young people to our website, then at least I know that they're going to get some accurate, accessible info. And mm. thousands of young people come to the website every day and I feel like I'm doing some good. But it doesn't replace good sex education in person. Talking about all this obviously makes me think back to my own sex education, right? And one thing that you said there really 
caught me, which was you mentioned the tea consent video, uh, which was basically for people that don't know, I'll link it in the show notes, but it's essentially this video where basically it's sort of um, talking about consent and tea and sort of sex and just saying that basically if someone wants a cup of tea, you can ask them, do you want a cup of tea? And they say yes. And you go, great. And you make them a cup of tea. Uh, if they say no, that's also fine. Um, if you say, do you want a cup of tea? And then you come back with the tea and then they go, actually, no, I don't want it anymore. That's also fine. And obviously then they go on to say, you know, if someone's asleep, they can't say yes to a cup of tea, that sort of thing. So I'll be 100% honest. I remember watching that and whenever it came out like five or six years ago and thinking, wow, this is the best video I've ever seen in my entire life. This is great. They've nailed consent. Can you show me what's what? Do a do a do a takedown of that video, like because maybe we've moved on from then. But I remember when I first saw it, thinking that's amazing. It stuck with me until now. So that's how powerful the video is. So I think that I can understand why they've put it on there. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, like it was it. It was a good video that you remember, but it te- did it teach you anything? No. Because, like you say, I understand that you can't offer someone a cup of tea when they're asleep. So, did you understand that before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, right. Of course, you did. Yeah, Everybody yeah, exactly. does. Everybody yeah. understands it. So, one of the criticisms of it is that the script for the tea and consent video came from a blogger, and this blogger was writing about a footballer who claimed that he didn't know that somebody was asleep or something, and he sexually assaulted her, and it got taken to court and stuff. And so she said, "Well, if it's like a cup of tea, then if somebody's asleep, then they don't." They don't want tea. You can't give them tea. So she's being sarcastic. She's taking the piss out of this footballer. Yeah. And then the Thames Valley Police took the script and thought, wow, this is amazing. Let's not consult any sex education professionals or anyone who's thought about consent, anyone who's written about consent. Let's not think about embodied autonomy. Let's not think about uh, the different ways we might do communicative consent. Let's not ask any experts whatsoever. We're just going to take this blog and we're going to put it in a video and then everyone just picks up on it. And the reason it got picked up on was that it's very easy to show a video, right? And Mm. so what teachers do is think, okay, I've tick that box everyone's seen this video but young people are not learning literally how to do consent they're Mm. just being taught this kind of um it's basically a bit of an in joke basically and Mm. so you have to have enough like social capital to understand that you know there are a set of people over here who understand that we shouldn't give somebody a cup of tea if they're asleep but then there's this whole other set of people who are so ignorant about consent that they don't know we all know we all know yeah. that, but it's making yeah. a joke at people who, who have done non-consensual things. And so on many levels, it doesn't work. Also, it doesn't talk about power. So mm. if I went over to Nigella Lawson's house and she made me a cup of tea, which I think a lot of us imagine that we might do, right? If she made me a <laughs> cup of tea and she didn't make it in a pot, she used a tea bag, she put the milk in at the same time as the hot water, didn't oh. even stir the tea bag, took it out um. and gave me, and it was a giant pint of tea right yeah yeah i would drink that tea and you know why because <laughs> i really fancy and admire nigella lawson and i'm in her house yeah right? so they don't mm. cover power at all in mm, this mm. in this so and so i'd be i'd be doing something non-consensual to myself and nigella wouldn't be opening up consent sorry nigella if you're listening to this i'm sure you would be very <laughs> good is. at this she would be excellent at this um yeah but i would feel like i'd be having to drink this cup of tea because there's a lot more at stake for me, and Nigella would might not think that, right? Mm, so, mm. and that is not they could go into that in the video, but they don't. Yeah. So it's a bad video, but everyone yeah. remembers it. It's such a brilliant analogy because me, you know, if it was me, 
Definitely, she'd have the power. I'd be asking for the cake as well. Mm. Definitely. Right. It's- but then also, it's like um, somebody was saying to me on a training course the other day, imagine someone's coming around to yours to watch a TV show. Mm. How can you maximise consent where you're both choosing to watch a TV show you want to watch? So what kinds of tools, what kinds of questions, what kinds of strategies might we use to make sure it was consensual? And somebody was saying, well, somebody came around and they wanted to watch this DIY show, so I put it on. And then I didn't really want to watch the DIY show and it was really boring, but I felt like I couldn't switch it over because it would be rude because <laughs> they're in my house. So that power dynamic can kind of flip and, and switch yeah. it but if you're yeah. if you're not if you're talking about consent and you're not talking about power, you're not talking about consent, and you're That's, not teaching anything mm. useful at all. Yeah, because if I made her open the biscuit tin or something, and she didn't mm-hmm. want to, she was saving it for breakfast or something. That would be yeah, that would be a right. real abuse of power. But like, yeah. brilliant but, and that's, point. That is so interesting, and because um, yeah, yeah, and I've never revisited that TV video, but I want to now, and I'll watch it and be like, mm. when, whenever I work in schools with young people, uh, and I say, you know, let's talk about consent. Immediately, though, that arms fall, and they're like, oh, not this again, because they've all seen the tea and consent video. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they think they're yeah. going to get. They think they're going to get lectured by an adult, and to who will tell them consent's really important. And you must get a yes or no before you do anything. And they're like, "Well, this is not very helpful." So what I do is to get them thinking about communicative consent and embodied autonomy and the ongoing practice of uh, and where power sits within that by teaching them about how to do consensual greetings, so like consensual handshakes, consensual hugs. And so by actually practicing it, I get them to do like three or four different kinds of greetings. So for the first greeting, I say, okay, what I'd like you to do is just to greet each other, like handshake, hug, however you might do it. And so with that, often young men, for example, will shake each other's hand and it's uh, right hand, medium firmness, up and down, two or three seconds, <laughs> done. Mm. And then so I'll say, okay, well, what happened in your, in your handshakes? You know, what's the social script for your handshake? Where did you learn that from? Uh, how do you know what to do? What What is it that makes a good handshake? And so we explore some of like the social scripts that are around that. Then for the second handshake, I say, okay, this time I'd like you to do another greeting, but I want you to negotiate everything about it before you do it. So talk about everything you might want from a greeting, everything you don't want from a greeting. So how firm do you want the handshake to navigate? How strong do you want the handshake to be from like a zero, which is the wet fish to 10, which is bone crushingly hard. How long do you want it to last for up and down shakes or side to side, et cetera, et cetera. And so then we discuss how that was and they say, well, it was good to have my needs met and it was good to kind of know that the other person was interested in meeting my needs too. But if I'm really awkward, it feels like it's not the kind of thing we should be talking about. It will kind of ruin the moment. You know, the thing with handshakes and greetings that there's meant to be an element of spontaneity and there's meant to be an element of you not knowing how it's going to happen. And also articulating exactly what we want from something is really hard. Like it's very hard to know exactly what we might want from a greeting, even if it's something we've done hundreds of times because different greetings happen in different contexts and in, in, in different ways with different people, with different paradigms. So then with the third handshake, I'm like, okay, let's have another one. This time, no negotiation, but I want you to slow everything down and really tune into each other and just try with uh, vibes and communication and understand and reading each other and slowing everything down, giving each other time and space, but without negotiating it first, try and give each other a really good handshake, a really good consensual handshake. 
And they do. So they're reliant on things like eye contact, body language, the strength of the connection and the moment of disconnection and whether someone is facing towards them, whether someone's smiling, whether someone's making any kind of noises like, a, mm, yeah, this is good or, yeah, that feels good, mm. you know, or, hmm. Yeah, or ow, or something. (laughs) So obviously all of this works as like an analogy for sex, but also it's a way for them to experience it. It's experiential learning. Mm. And they love that. Mm. And they love it because they're not being lectured. They're actually learning something that they can feel they can take away and possibly use if they choose to have sex. And it's actually a useful tool that they have. And so this is the thing with sex education generally, is that there's too many lectures and not enough tools. We're not equipping people correctly and and it's really sad because you know sex education in schools should be uh one of the really fun interesting topics and we just turned it into something just so dire it's true i remember sex ed at my school was like not only was it was it the prospect of it scary there was this weird like sort of fear around it but also then when you were there it was just boring and unhelpful yeah. Um, so you're right. It's like this is it's potentially some of the worst descriptors I can think of anything like terrifying and boring. Because right. um, <laughs> at least a horror film is like excitingly terrifying. Uh, sure. A boring horror film is perhaps the worst piece of art in the world. And that's basically what um, our lessons were. to talk about difference, to talk about different bodies, to talk about different family relationships, to talk about love in the broader in that broader context. Mm. Well, that all could be, we should mm. be doing that from the get-go. Mm. Mm. You could also make explicit the implicit. You could actually say, you know, my sex education was so bad, I feel inhibited, I feel like I can't talk about it, and there's so much shame. What's yours like? 
You know, is yours any better than that? Mm. And to actually talk about some of the things that actually make this a tricky topic to talk about. And that kind of meta kind of conversation, talking about what makes it uncomfortable can be a really good starting point because that also kind of connects you in that way. It kind of like, Mm. it says, well, we're all in this culture, right? The idea that sex is something to be ashamed about, not something we should be talking about, that it is only about reproduction and that Mm. it should only happen within the context of a very particular kind of relationship. And so that Mm. makes all of this very tricky. And the other thing about that as well, which is something I've not already mentioned yet, is that, you know, we have this culture around sex that we might have experienced from our own sex education, we might describe as like sex negativity, but we have a whole new set of what we might call discourses, which are in society now, which is known as sex positivity, where it's rather than sex being bad and only about reproduction and it might cause STIs now we have a whole different set of discourses which say sex is really good we should all be doing it it's necessary in our relationships it should be pleasurable mm. and it should we should all be having orgasms from it and they're kind of equally unhelpful as well because they tell people what they should be doing rather than inviting people to navigate what it is that might work for them. So when you're at school, up until up until the age of 18, when you leave school, they're telling you the sex is bad and then you go out into the world and you get the absolute opposite messages. And so you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, basically. So I think that's really interesting what you say because I think podcasts like ours and like sex educators, sometimes like sex positivity is easily what people brand... I'd like to say, I guess, us as, because we talk about all these things and all that sort Mm. of stuff. And I think being sex positive is probably seen as the way to be, because obviously, Mm. like, we're we're free loving, like, everyone's welcome, blah, blah, blah. But actually, like you say, in doing that, in being so sex positive, we're almost creating, like you said, like, if you are too much, then you can create another set of shoulds. You should be having lots of sex. You should be having casual sex. You should be trying all these toys you should be orgasming every time you should be like Mm -hmm. swinging from the ceilings and again yeah that can really mess with people well that brings people into sex therapy all the time saying we we aren't doing what we should be doing and it you you know and you you hear what they're doing and it's fine it's not a problem it's just what uh, they believe is the problem yeah 100 percent. and when and and when we say sex is about hard penises and and wet throbbing vaginas or Mm. lubed up anuses sorry to be so graphic but it's sex education no we love it Um, we love it you know resulting in orgasms and that is the only thing that counts as sex that penetrative sex is the only kind of thing that counts Mm. yeah and i think a lot of people's sexual problems you know natsal three the big survey we have in the uk about sex big academic study it's done every 10 years the last natsa which came out around 10 years ago would do another one found that 50 percent of people report having some kind of sexual problem mm. and almost mm. all of those sexual problems would disappear entirely if we had this much broader view of what sex is mm. and why and why it is we might have sex mm. it's our very definitions of sex which of course are taught through sex education but also taught through media and shows like Bridgerton uh, or mm-hmm. any you know any kind of sex scene in Hollywood or in in TV or in porn is all about penetrative sex it's like mm. yeah so how do you try and counteract that with your website something i've just tried to do and i get well i guess i've just found it helpful for me is to be so matter of fact about it mm. in some of the videos that i've made young people have said you know 
good video, but this guy's voice is sending me to sleep. You know, that we don't have to kind of make sex education sexy. Like, we can make it, you mm. know, interesting, lighthearted, informative. But it doesn't have to be, you know, there is this kind of idea that in order to talk about sex, it has to be somehow sexy. And I, don't, I, th- I think that's pr- inappropriate, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think there is this kind of crossover that people have in their minds, but also a lot of sex-positive creators think that sexy and sex education kind of go together. And they can, but they, I think in some cases, it's really inappropriate. And clearly, when you're doing this work with young people, massively inappropriate. So Mm -hmm. it's about this kind of being able to have this quite matter-of-fact way of talking about it and modeling it, which is to be able to talk about sex as if it's it was just another subject and so and to talk about it and to enable people to talk about it in a way which treats it seriously and actually brings in these really kind of big interesting important topics one of the things i think is really interesting about bish and just sex education in general as well is is relationships mm. because i think a lot of time for me it's it's sex education and relationships are to the wayside yeah i think that we ought to see sex ed as being short for sexuality education and that sexuality Mm. is this much broader topic than just you know what label you are the thing that young people are constantly saying is that there isn't enough about relationships there isn't enough about feelings it's all very biological and like biomedical and so there's a big section at the website about relationships for example there's a big post about trust I've been doing stuff about feelings as well. So how to be sad, how to be angry, how to love ourselves. Um, Mm. Mostly young people farm our website by Googling their questions, basically. Mm. And they're wanting to learn things like how to have sex. They're wanting to learn about bodies, but they're also wanting to learn about things to do with consent and communication um, Mm. and relationships. And that's the kind of stuff they're not getting anywhere else really so certainly there isn't enough about relationships just generally one final thing before we go is the questions on your website are so brilliant as well that you answer all these questions so how many are you getting in and and also have you does that mean you've noticed like trends are there certain things that people are anxious about at the moment that they weren't anxious about before and things like that um that's a good question i'm not I'm, i wouldn't say i've spotted very many trends i mean the, the mm. most common question that i get via the website is uh am i pregnant questions and it's usually questions <laughs> really? from young people wow. yeah but it's usually questions from young people who have done things which are cannot get them pregnant basically so it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. and the reason why they're asking these questions is because they've been taught that in sex education that the worst possible thing you can do is to get pregnant and yeah. they're taught that all you have to do is to do it once and you'll immediately get pregnant and the pre-cum mm. is is uh, just as likely to get you pregnant as uh, cum-cum and mm. I'm like no that's none of this is true There's a, on average there is a 3.1% chance of pregnancy beginning from every single act of intercourse if you have regular sex over the course of a year there is an 80 percent chance of pregnancy that's the advice we give to women who want to get pregnant that but mm. so do it for a year and you might get pregnant but the advice mm. we give to young people is as soon as you do it you're probably going to get pregnant mm. and so young people yeah. are panicking and often have actually been saying to me they're having like suicidal thoughts about this so wow. you know bad sex education is worse than no sex education so if you think you're doing yeah. something bad stop it um <laughs> yeah yeah but that's that's the most common question. But I do get lots of questions about consent-related stuff, uh, mm. um, abuse, uh, sexting mm. stuff, uh, mm. but also things to do with sex itself, like losing hard ones. I'm just going through some of the questions I've been asked lately. Why won't he top me? Humping a pillow, is it normal? When do people begin yes. masturbating? My sex dreams feel better than sex in real life. 
And so, yeah, if I get an interesting question and I have the time slash funding to do it, then, you know, I'll try and give a really good answer. Brilliant. So so where can people find all of this? The website's called Bish UK, but if you just Google Bish and then something to do with sex and relationships, it's usually the top hit for that. I think I'm currently the top hit for How to Wank as well, which I'm very proud of. Oh, that yeah. is class. Yeah. It's for, it's for over 14s. So a lot of adults read it too, but it's mostly young people who go there. <laughs> I have to say, I've been reading it this morning as well, in preparation as well. I found it incredibly useful already and i'm not i'm you know i'm not just saying that there's loads of things there's so many articles on there i actually can't Mm. believe how much there is on there um so i found it really useful as well even if it is for people over 14 you know thank you i mean every time i go on it i think oh no it's going to be a rabbit hole again i'm just going to keep going and keep going and keep going because it's just so interesting yeah it's great. I guess the other thing I'd like to flag up is that it doesn't get very much funding at the moment. It used to be sponsored mm. by mm. Uh, a major condom manufacturer, uh, but it's not anymore. And it's I'm basically reliant on patrons, like everyone else at the moment. So mm. if people want to support it, um, there are links from the website uh, to the patron, uh, patreon.com forward slash Bish UK, if they wanted to support it and help me provide these kind of resources and tools for young people. If they think that's uh, valuable and useful, that'd be really yeah. great. Well, Justin, thank you so much again. I think the work you're doing with Bish UK is amazing. Bishuk.com. Check it out. But again, just Google Bish and then something to do with sex or how to wank. Yeah. Um, and we can, and how to wank, I love it. So we, could, <laughs> so we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, so people can go and find it. Mm. Um, Justin, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Lovely chatting to you both. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite, and the executive producer is Claire Broughton. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 